0: Okay, you guys, okay, okay. Quick aside before we get started. This is going to be a little sentimental. One of my first sports memories was that I remember was going to a Braves game with my dad. I remember seeing John Smoltz, and he pitched 97 miles per hour on the gun. And we were driving home, 85 north. No side. Um, We were driving home, 85 north. And we were going about 65, 70 miles in the car, cruising. Wasn't too much traffic. And I remember talking to my dad, me and my brother, we were real psyched about the game. And I was telling my dad, like, yo, this car isn't even going as fast as his pitch. And we tapped Bueller up. You know what I'm saying? We we beat him down pretty good. The fact that Atlanta was able to pull this off and they're headed to the World Series. I'm not even finna sit here and lie to you like I'm a baseball savant. Follow the game like that. I've got a very important, special person to me who was a huge Braves fan. And it, it means a lot that they made it to the World Series. So let's go, boys. Chop on. Bring this championship back to the city of Atlanta.
1: Man, keep Keeper 20, helmet case emergency. Ain't no cap in my nah. Real, I know it's the truck. More profit, me extra. Him white, I'm the pressure. Broke, broke, broke. That cereal milk smoking right but that Obama write some special. Obama. Kansas City, I'm a chief. Yeah. Shout out to K5, on am new. Cut your thing, I was hushin'. What? I always had it on me. Booming like OJ the juice. Till a nigga told on me. Run down, this relentless. Ain't no love, we ain't friendly. Nah. He should want me on him. No la law, she be the business. No, no, yeah. no, no. Know the law, still the model. Empire.
0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome in. This is the Birds of a Feather Podcast with your boy Q City. We're here today after a big Falcons win on Sunday, so we're gonna do a game rewind where we dive into last week, look ahead to next week versus the Panthers, do a little in-division as we look around the league, give me props, we see how I did on betting, and look forward to next week and then a little city talk at the end. So go ahead and strap in and let's get started. All right, so let's talk about this game on Sunday. I did predict the Falcons win, they won by two. There was a lot going on in this game, and a lot I really want to dive in to talk about. So if we do a little quick game rewind, Miami gets the ball first. They go down, phew, hit it up quick, score a touchdown, long drive. I think they had a touch touchback on that drive, so they went 75 yards. We trade three and outs, and then we come back, get the ball, get a long drive going, And we end it with three. It wasn't the best, but coups automatic. The thing that was interesting about that drive is our three big plays were made by each of our tight ends, as you probably know, on National Tight End Day. But it was kind of indicative of how the game was going, how we were going to attack the middle of those zones with our tight ends. And Miami definitely switched it up because they are a press man and have exotic fronts. But for the most part of the day... They came at us with four men, put the corners in cover two, and our safeties were, their safeties were back deep. Our tight ends were able to eat up that middle of the field. And then when they were in man coverage, Atlanta ultimately exploited it. So then, this is what I would call the biggest drive of the game. Miami gets the ball. They are driving. They get stalled. Atlanta blocks the field goal. That was the turning point in the game. I know a lot of people can point to different points, but Atlanta blocking that field goal and then going down and scoring a touchdown, it, it, it was beautiful. It was over at that point. Should have been over. We had the momentum. We came into their house. We took the game back. It's 10-7 at that point. The mm-hmm. touchdown play was so amazing to me. Strictly for the fact that it was very creative with the play call. Ridley came across the formation left or right and was able to slide into the end zone. And Matt Ryan found him perfectly. I was very happy with the play call, especially close to the goal line. We're actually pretty efficient efficient in the red zone area. So then something that was indicative of the day, Miami was able to put another long drive in. But this one got intercepted. Uh, By the safety in the end zone, Tua made a terrible decision on this play. Like, when you look at the coverage, uh, Deion Jones was falling back in the safety. He was in the end zone. He was like two yards deep in the end zone. He tried to slide it into the tight end. It made no sense to throw that ball. So it got intercepted, and then Atlanta was able to get those hidden points. That's something that I felt we struggled for years. End of half end of quarter, end of game type situations where you're able to get points on the board and then double dip because you're getting the ball back. We were able to get that field goal before half. It was a little questionable on the timeout situation. Uh, He ended up calling one really early, but we were able to get the field goal. And then we come out after half and get another touchdown on that long play to gauge. At this point, it's, it's looking good. We trade three and outs. Uh, Miami tent goes down, and another long drive, gets a touchdown. Trade three and outs again. And at this play, we get a great, great play by Xavier Howard. Atlanta had the ball. Matt Ryan throws to Ridley, and Howard basically just takes that thing. He's like, no, that's all me. I'm taking that. And Tua follows that up with what might be the worst interception I've seen in a long time. Like he's halfway on his knees and tries to slide the ball in. Aluakan, it falls in his face. He's like, what is this? Takes the ball down to about the 14-yard line. Patterson gets it in two, three plays later. Now I want to pause right here. We are up two touchdowns at this point. It is 27 to 10. Uh, no, it is 27 to 14. And we are looking like, okay, this game is in the bag. All we got to do is, it's fourth quarter. It was like 12 minutes left when Patterson ran that ball in. We are in full and firm control of this game. This is when I honestly felt that we set ourselves apart from previous Atlanta teams. Previous Falcons teams, I I would say. So back into it. Miami gets the ball. They mount a long drive. This was a thing all day. They were having long drives all day. The defense did their part, put them in long uh, positions. The offense did their part. I mean, in special teams and put them in long field positions. But Miami was driving the ball long all day. Two throws, a jump ball to Gasecki. He gets it. it. It was just. It was a good play. We get the ball back. About six minutes left. This is where. It, it really frustrated me. We get two incompletions back-to-back, throwing out the shadow of our own end zone. Then you get a big play to Ridley. You get a big run by Patterson. You don't get the play in on second down. You call a timeout, come back, run the ball. And so now you're in third and eight. And if you remember what I said, we get in third and seven plus, and we it's almost like we give up on the play. Or we're just assured not to make this first down. And Matt Ryan, I, I for the life of me, I don't know what he was doing. He knew he could not run anyone. Get down, but he fumbles the ball. And they've been driving the ball long all day, and he gives them the ball on the plus side of the field. Now Miami goes down. They didn't take too much time off the clock. They scored a touchdown. Uh, threw it to Matt Hollins in the back of the end zone. Two will roll it out. He's pretty uh, nice, decently athletic cat. The best part about this was getting the ball with two minutes and 20 seconds, two timeouts and the two-minute warning, and truly feeling like, oh, no, we, we got this one. I don't think I've felt that way in the past two years because I felt like we were steadily moving the ball on Miami. We got stalled out a couple times, but out of the 10 drives we had, four of them were, no, six of them were three and outs. Other than that, we scored. It it was a nice trade up to this point. So then we get to this drive. Man Ryan comes in. He, hard play action, hits pits in the middle of four defenders. If you look at that play, he had Gage running deep, and that was taking the safety with him. I would have loved for him to take that shot, especially it being first down, but I wasn't upset. I don't know what the official was doing, but they weren't able to get the ball there there in enough time to avoid the two-minute warning. So then you come back, run the ball, and then he hits Pitts on just a beautiful pass down the sideline, behind the corner, in front of the safety. Just Matt still had it in that moment. He still doesn't have like that big cannon of an arm, but that was a nice throw fit in a tight window against man coverage. You remember, like I said last week, he he sees that man coverage and he knows he has the athletes. So he puts the ball up there for his guys. And that is one thing I appreciate about Matt. So I've got like a few major takeaways from the game. First things first, Kyle Pitts is a monster. His day was ridiculous. Seven for 163. But the, the best thing about those seven receptions for 163 He had eight targets. Eight times he was throwing the ball, caught seven of them. That's like a 94, 95% catch rate. Awesome. Matt Ryan, decent day, 336, two touchdowns. He had one pick. I couldn't really fault him for it, but he had a fumble. His QBR was 43.7, 47.4, my bad. And when you look at it, 50 is average. So basically graded on that scale, he had an average day. I would say outside of that last drive where he just put together a virtuoso performance, his day was pretty average. Looking at the stats, I thought we had more impact in the running game, but we ran for less than 100 yards. Matt really put us on his back today, and granted, the defense was allowing Miami to get everything. Honestly, I even posted about it. We probably should have been down 17-10 to 10 when we went into halftime, and we were up 13 We were up 13 to 3. Or we were up 13 to 7. So it was very surprising that we were in the position that we were in. The guy I want to talk about is Ridley. Calvin Ridley had a terrible day. And I know you look at it. Four receptions for 26 yards and a touchdown. That's bad. But no. when When you look into the numbers, it is terrible. He had 10 targets. Four receptions on 10 targets, 40% catch rate. That's that speaks for itself. That's terrible. When you look at it deeper, he had 0.7%, he had 0. 0.7 yards of separation on average on his routes. Calvin Ridley is known as a sharp route runner and getting open, which is allows him to make those catches. He doesn't, he's not one of those body got. Excuse me. Body guys that goes to you snatches the ball away. He's okay. I've made two cuts on this route. I'm where I need to be. And now I have separation from the defender to make this nice catch. He was showing none of that this week. I don't know if it was still the personal issues going on or maybe his body wasn't in football shape from taking two taking basically two weeks off, you know, the London trip and then the bye week. But. This this was a this was a super poor outing. Patterson, who's been a fantasy stud, he was almost non-existent in the passing game. Uh two receptions for one yard and then rushing, he had 60 yards in that touchdown. I thought there was much more to his game because it felt like he had a bigger impact than the stats, but you can't be mad at a win. I would just love to see more production out of those two guys in particular because they are a huge part. Of our offense. When you look at our defense, we had a much maligned day. Like I said, Miami was able to mount long drive after long drive. We had some three and outs and getting them out the field off the field, and then our offense wasn't able to truly capitalize on it. And when you're looking at a defense, that's what you need. You need timely stops in red zone defense. We had the timely stops today. Although our like I said, our offense wasn't able to capitalize, but our red zone efficiency was terrible. Outside of the block field goal, they didn't stop Miami from scoring. When we got that second, when we got that first interception, Miami wasn't in the red zone. Tua just made a terrible throw. Like that's that was a bad throw. <laughs> um, yeah, Miami was able to get anything they wanted today. Leading tackler was Debo. He had 15 tackles, 3 for loss. He had our only sack, and he had a QB hit. Moreau, he did pretty good on the other side of A.J. Terrell. Up until A.J. got taken out with a um, head injury. They said it's a neck injury instead. We're going to see his status for next week because we really need him. Uh, He did really good. They didn't throw at A.J. much. Uh, I really only remember two passes going his way, and he allowed one of them to be he allowed one of them caught, and that's the hit where he messed up his neck. But Moreau was able to get three pass deflections. Uh, they picked on him a bit with the taller receivers, but he he held his own out there. My boy Grady Jarrett, because I've been seeing him getting slandered online. And the people slandering him seem to not recognize what a D-tackle's job is in this defense. Of course he needs somebody very dominant right next to him it would help if we had edge rushers but he provided the only push inside that we got he had three quarterback hits four tackles miami barely runs the ball and today decided they were going to get everything they wanted running the ball so grady was testing and double teamed pretty much all day if you look at it we had missed tackle after missed tackle in the backfield grady was demanding a double team and still ended up with four tackles and three qb hits like I said, Debo was our only sack, and in total, we only had four QB hits. And I think six hurries. a drop back way too much not to be filling the Falcons' defense. We got to get consistent pressure from the edges because Grady's doing his job in the middle. And I don't think we have the coverage behind us to hold up sending, sending the house, sending blitz. We blitzed very, very seldomly, and the three times we did ended up in a sack, a touchdown, and an incompletion. So uh, it's about a 66% uh, success rate on that. But still, allowing a touchdown because your blitz is not ideal is something we really got to look to fix. Another super concerning part. We gave up another lead. Again, again, like I said, I felt confident when Matt got the ball with two minutes and some change left because of how our offense was moving. And Young-Wake, who was automatic, he's kicking the hell out of that ball. Like, if, if he puts his foot to it, you know it's going through. And it's really, really a successful thing to feel like, okay, we got the kicking game settled. If we just get into range, we know we got a chance. And it, it's especially helpful knowing you only need a field goal to... You know, win the game. But the fact that with 12 minutes left, we were up 27 to 14 and managed to let Miami score two touchdowns, two touchdowns unanswered back to back. It it just it really doesn't sit well in my stomach over the simple fact that this is how we continually lose games. I remember a couple years back we were when we had that big Dallas loss where they just forgot to field the onside kick. One of the things that really bothered me is when we scored a touchdown, we were up 19 and went for two. Going up 19 and going for two means that you expect to give up a three-touchdown lead. And I almost felt the same way in this game. When Matt Ryan was coming out there running for that first down, why are you not sliding so you can punt the ball away and really trust in your defense it's like subconsciously you know that you're giving up this lead and you're getting tight it's something i I don't like and we've got to get rid of that psyche in our team i'm very happy about the win please don't think i'm just here like bashing on the falcons i'm glad we got a win three and three is a is a decent place to be after seven weeks it's just we can get better at a lot of things but overall Really proud of my boys out here for the win this week. Now we're looking into next week versus Carolina. Sam Darnold is struggling bad. They started 3-0, and he was leading the league in touchdown. Like, he was leading the league in touchdown rushes. He is falling off a cliff after that. He got benched last week for P.J. Walker. Uh, New York was just destroying them. Had the backups in. I think midway through the fourth quarter, like it, it was bad. It was 25 to three. And if that score looks weird, it's because they had a safety and field goal. Like it was, it was all bad. Carolina looks like they weren't even decently prepared to play. We don't have AJ Terrell next week. So DJ Moore being able to run all over this defense is going to be a problem. Especially when I think about the fact that Moreau could be matched up on him and they're going to feast on our backups. I still don't think our safety play is amazing, but like I said, Tua wasn't really able to challenge our safeties in that way. They don't work in the middle of the field. Sam Darnold is not a timing and throwing quarterback. He has eight interceptions on the year to seven touchdowns. You add in his six rushing, uh, he's at 13. Mobile quarterbacks have always given us a problem. You see what Heineke was able to do with extending the plays. Sam Darnold is in that category. And honestly, I think he's better at it. His talent is undeniable. His decision making, he's going to give some up on you. But I don't really feel like Atlanta has the defensive stalwarts to capitalize on that. I feel like if we continue with the missed tackles that we had in this week's game, Sam Darnold's going to make us pay with. Big plays over the top. When when we get into the scramble drill, we're all we're at a loss. We're heavily at a loss. Our safeties seem to always get out of position and let somebody get behind them. I think what Washington was able to do where when they entered the scramble drill and wherever their quarterback was rolling out to, heading toward the sideline, but then making a sharp cut up the field allows for huge and that allowed for big plays or at least the underneath route to come in behind that or the quarterback to scramble and get four to seven yards is what Sam Darnold is going to thrive on Joe Brady was the offensive coordinator at LSU well offensive assistant at LSU Joe Burrow's year one of the big things that he capitalized with Joe Burrow in his mobility was moving the pocket especially to a strong side to his right When I look at Sam Darnold, he can make off platform throws to his right or left. And so I see them moving that pocket, especially since Atlanta doesn't have significant edge rushers, sealing that off and taking deep shots down the field, especially on first down. Chuba Hubbard is nice. No, he's not Christian McCaffrey. Like, (laughs) no back in the league really is. But Chuba, I've seen him at Oklahoma State. Boy can run, you know what I'm saying? he He's not just an outside the tackles try to get a field type either. He he can go in the hole and make somebody miss. He's having a decent season, and obviously he's getting the most carries because Christian McCaffrey's injured. Pretty sure he's still going to be out for this game. But I think without problems stopping the run last week, we've really got to shore up that interior on the defense. I think us not having decent edges, decent ends, is going to be a problem this week in particular. Carolina loves sweeps to the outside or a design runs to the left. Grady usually lines up at that right side de-tackle. Even if he's coming upfield, he's chasing the play on the back end if they run a sweep or a toss to the left. One of two things are going to happen. They're either going to run away from Grady all day and punish us on the left side of that line or they're going to run right up at Grady and double team him and get belly runs up the A-gap all day long because Debo's light and Aluakon, as you see, he can lay the wood, but he gets out of position all the time on screens and inside runs and I really don't understand it because they run the gap right to him and for some reason he floods to where the guards go. Atlanta's favored by two and a half. I think that's a reasonable number. My early thought is to take Atlanta on that. Chin on defense, really nice playmaking safety. He had a couple good plays against uh New York. When I look at him, he tends to guess a little bit, but boy, when he comes down in the hole, he is shutting down that running game. And I think he's had two interceptions on the year. Their defense wasn't all that against the Giants. Granted, they were getting blown out most of the game, but they had five QB hits and two sacks. Decent pressure. They could do a lot more. They didn't have too many pressures, but Danny Dimes is way more mobile than Matt Ryan. Their O-line was a problem, though. They allowed six sacks and 10 quarterback hits. Now, granted, Sam Darnold does hold the ball longer than most people. So it's not completely unheard of that he takes a lot of sacks or takes a lot of hits or delivers the ball under duress trying to hold it and make a big play. There's a problem with a lot of mobile quarterbacks. But the fact that they allowed six sacks to a New York Giants team that, outside of Dexter Lawrence, doesn't really have any inside pressure, and I can't think of their ends off the top of my head. I know Jabril Peppers plays from a linebacker, kind of that linebacker safety hybrid, and he got maybe a sack or two. But they they were in Darnold's Grill all day. I do think that if there's ever a get-right game for our ends and tackles, it might be this week against what I consider inferior competition. So even though we have our problems on the D-line generating pressure, this might be like a stats game, a game where you go ahead, you get the feeling right, you like your matchups, you run a couple stunts, and you're able to shrink that pocket. And if you're able to shrink him and contain, keep him inside the pocket, I feel like Sam Darnold's gonna make some bad decisions. So let's take a look at in Division. First things first, the Bucks killed the Bears, absolutely destroyed them. Tom Brady doing alien things, 602 touchdowns. They're six and one. I don't wanna spend any more time discussing that man because I sports hate him. <laughs> The Saints are playing the Seahawks right now. I fully intend for them to win that game. That puts them at four wins and the Seahawks at five losses, two and five, down there with the Giants. So our division is looking at six wins, four wins, and two teams with three wins heading into next week. Uh, Obviously, already discussed the Panthers. Right now, we are only one spot out of the seven seed with three wins. Detroit is winless right now, and Minnesota and Chicago both have three wins. Green Bay is on top of that division with six. They, they, the Bucks and the Rams have six wins, but the Rams obviously are in the wild card spot because Arizona is undefeated right now. Uh, the NFC East has Dallas, who has five wins and only has one loss. And then I think they have three two-win teams. So, you know, the Giants, the Eagles, and the Redskins— Oh, my bad. The Washington football team are objectively terrible. And the fact that Atlanta lost to Washington is just pitiful. But anyway, the NFC West, like I said, has Arizona undefeated and then L.A. at six and one. Seattle and San Fran are both teams that are struggling mightily. And after watching Sunday Night Football with San Fran, I don't see them getting it right this year. They they look like they lost their mojo really bad. And Seattle's going to be down until Russ comes back. Now granted, they might come, they might go on a run once Russ gets back in there, but this is the time we got to rack up wins. It's never too early to start thinking about the playoffs, but it can definitely get too late. I understand taking it one game at a time, but we've got to look at the fact that we're probably not going to win this division. Let's just be real. Let's just be real. I'm not being a Falcons hater or anything like that. The the Bucks are running away with this thing right now. And they've got that high-powered offense. Their defense is looking ridiculous. We play them again, but like I said, they only got one loss right now, and we got three. So we're two and a half behind them. I think our reasonable assumption is to either get the seven or the six seed. The five seed, I feel, is already locked up, and it's going to be between the second team and the NFC West. Which means... We're really fighting Minnesota, Chicago, Seattle, like I said, when Russ gets back on point, and the Saints. Because it's looking like the Panthers are going to fall out of this. When I look at Chicago, they're starting Justin Fields. He's, He's a rookie. He's a rookie, and against good teams, he looks absolutely terrible. I never trusted Kirk Cousins a day in my life, so... Even though Minnesota might get to 9-10 wins, he's going to choke it up if it if it comes down to the point. Seattle is obviously scary. I think they're going to get on a run even now. I project them to be 2-5 after this game. Our big opponent just happens to be our biggest opponent. The Saints are a conundrum. It's like they shouldn't be this good, but they're just good enough. And at the point after tonight, they should have one more win than us play them twice haven't even started playing them yet we've got to win both those games we've got to it's it's non-negotiable because I feel a split or a sweep with them would be the difference between us making the playoffs or not and now for my favorite portion the betting portion give me props the NFL portion of my betting I usually release on Thursday because that's when the prop bets come out As of now, Atlanta's got a a two-and-a-half line on Carolina, and I'm taking Atlanta for the win. I will give out the rest of my prop bets on the Thursday podcast, as well as posting them online at QCity11. I give out my NBA props each night before the game, so check me out on Twitter, QCity11, as well as on Instagram. So let's look how we did last week. I talked about having a parlay. And a parlay means you're betting that all four things happen. And you're looking at the game and you're like, oh, yeah, that's happened. Oh, yeah, that's happened. Oh, yeah, that's happening. You look at the end of the game and you realize you're not getting paid out. And you're like, what the hell happened? Well, let me tell you what happened. If you remember my four bets from last week, Falcons win straight out. Dolphins were favored. I bet that the Falcons would win. Bam, happened. Debo over seven and a half tackles. If you remember me saying, I was like, oh, that's the easiest bet on point. He had 15, so of course took the over. Tua over one and a half touchdowns. He threw four. I knew he was gonna eat up this Atlanta defense. I just thought, hey, we've got enough to overpower him, and we did. Let's go, Falcons. The one that killed me, I had Ridley over 76 and a half yards. This man had 26, bro. With a straight face, went out there, caught the Tutty, and you like, oh yeah, he' about to kill today didn't do shit else. Bruh, if you wanna talk about mad that you losing some money. You can't be too mad at the win, but come on. What were you doing out there? What were you doing out there that you had 26 yards against backup DBs and a guy coming right off the IR? It it was just it was it was a terrible showing. It was a terrible outing. It cost me on parlay. Uh I made some other bets that, you know, on other games, so it was able to Get decent, but oh, that one hurt. That one hurt. We'll look at the props for next weekend and see what we're going to do. Might not parlay. Might just might just bet these props straight up and see if we win because I, I, I don't think I can do that to my soul again. That one hurt. <laughs> now let's get into some city talk. First things, I finally got... DM message from my man Jeremy he was asking me to talk about Grady Jarrett and Jordan Davis so for y'all for y'all who don't know Jordan Davis is defensive tackle at Georgia he is playing like a man possessed now if you look at Grady Jarrett he's got two years remaining on his current deal his dead cap is 28 this year this is down from 31 last year you know he signed that big deal this is his age 29 season. This is age 28 season. His age 29 season, he'll have a $7.3 million cap hit. And then his age 30 season, he's an unrestricted free agent. I see them re-signing him next year to a two or three year deal, but I feel like that's all they're going to offer him. Otherwise, after next year, I definitely consider him free agent material. I'm not a huge fan of giving over 30-year-old players big contracts that aren't quarterbacks, so I could definitely understand if they let him walk. And with that being the case, drafting Jordan Davis makes a lot of sense. Here's my only problem with that. Atlanta is one win out of the seven seed right now, which means if you make the playoffs, the earliest pick you get is 18? No. 21. That's the earliest pick you get if you make the playoffs. Because 14 teams in the playoffs. The Jordan Davis ain't gonna be there. <laughs> he's, he's not. If you go back and you look at Cam Newton's year at Auburn, Cam Newton being drafted number one wasn't really a huge surprise. Look at somebody like Nick Fairley on that team. He got drafted by Detroit. It was either three or six overall, it was in the top ten. It's not that he was bad, and it's not that he wasn't deserving of a first-round pick, but his spot definitely got elevated being on a national championship or at least a team that was highly kamada, like highly seen, highly sought after that year. Look at Alabama. They've dealt with this year after year after year where if they're constantly on TV and that defense is constantly being seen and you're playing around other star players, they have linebackers. DBs and defensive linemen that are drafted way higher just strictly based off the pedigree of the defense and the fact that you're constantly seeing Georgia's strength this year is their defense and looking at it they they are awesome this isn't a college football podcast so I'm not going to get into it and bore you too much with it I just don't think Jordan Davis is going to be there late 20s. So at this point, you're looking for the Falcons to manufacture a trade. I don't know how aggressive this GM is going to be in the draft. And so it's going to be really interesting to see it. He didn't make too much movement outside of late round movement. I think in the fifth round, he moved down last year. So I don't see super aggressive moves to move up and draft for what is a potential need. It will be really interesting to see how they move forward it, but Grady's going to be on the team next year. Regardless, his age 29 season, he hasn't had any major injuries. You have an out if you want to take the 7.3 in dead cap. But otherwise, I consider his production outweighs the salary. He should be on the team next year. He's going to be upset because I don't think they're going to give him a new contract. And if you want to keep him for his age 30 season, you can designate him a franchise player or transition tag him. Either way, I see Grady Jarrett on the team for, of course, this year and next year. I don't see a plausible way to get Jordan Davis, but hey, we can all hope. The next topic that i seen buzzing around, and I'm pretty sure it was because we were playing Miami this week and all that was surrounding them, was Deshaun Watson and his ability to come to the Falcons. Let me be the first off to say I am not a moral compass. I don't know what was said or done, the only people that know what was said or done were the people was him and the masseuses. So I'm not here to cast moral aspirations on anyone. Whatever he does, that's him and the person's business and will be sorted out in legal matters. Let me be the first one to say that. That means nothing to me in the sense of I can't comment on that portion. So I'm going to keep it strictly football and numbers. That trade cannot happen. The only point I will stray off the football field is the race element of it. There are a lot of fans that still prefer Vic because he feels more like the city than Matt Ryan, and they feel like they took a drastic heel turn with uh, drafting Matt Ryan. So if you get Deshaun Watson back, it will kind of reinvigorate that, re-invigorate that vibe around, you know, like having an African American quarterback that fits the city per se. Um, when you look at the numbers, though, it makes absolutely no sense. Cannot happen. Deshaun Watson signed a massive contract that extended on the end of his rookie deal. So if you remember last time we talked, we talked about gra- drafting a rookie quarterback and how they're cheap. Well, they're cheap for four years. And then you get a fifth year option, which is significantly more money. How you maximize having that rookie deal is that you sign the player after their third year and basically prorate it on your cap, those huge numbers that you're paying them. So he's got a $36 million annual salary. After his third year of his rookie deal, he was only making about $7 million. So they'll tack on the huge cap numbers early in his deal. And then try to thin them out later, because you know NFL teams can always get out of deals. You have them pretty even in the middle and then tapered off toward the end. Kind of like a fade, if you will when you cut in here. real heavy at the real heavy at the top, even in the middle, fade off at the back. So even though in cash, it looks like he's making seven to ten million dollars, he gets paid in the signing bonus up front for 3 years of work and then that is reflected on the dead cap meaning th- this is why Houston is so reticent to cut him if they cut him right now it would be 67 million dollars dead cap that's honestly why they're waiting to to the end of this year i don't see him traded during the year if they wait to the end of this year and you know like March 10th the beginning of the next league year he's owed 51 million dollars That's still really, really really hard. If you were to put him, Matt Ryan, trade straight up. His contract where he's making actual money starts next year. We're going to have to take the dead cap hit for Matt Ryan, which is $26 million. Then add that on top of Deshaun's uh, coming to us. We don't absorb his dead cap Mm -hmm. of 51. This is literally just absorbing his salary. So we would absorb the $18 million. But you add the dead cap and then his $18 million, that's $44 million just in the quarterback position. Then you got to have a backup. We're spending $48 million in cap dollars on just the quarterback position for only one guy that's playing with us. That is tough. That is tough, especially when you have other holes on the team. You can't do it. You can't do it and reasonably build a team. You're paying one guy 26 mil not to play for you. That's before you sort out the, the legal matters and mess going on. So as much as a talent on the football field, I love watching Deshaun Watson and I love seeing him play. It's just it's not possible to have him in a Falcons jersey this year or next. Okay, I thought about it, and I'm going to tiptoe lightly around this part of the subject. Deshaun Watson isn't playing because the Houston Texans are sitting him down. It's not that he's not playing because the league has decided that he's done something wrong or that his legal matters have been absolved or that they've been settled in any way. The fact that teams are talking about trading him, the fact that teams are talking about getting a trade done for him, leads me to believe that through their private investigations, company-wise, they're looking at the claims and there may be a resolution in the future. But you have to realize, once you trade for Deshaun Watson, the league has not decided anything versus him yet. And you can be innocent in the court of law and still be suspended by the league. If you remember the Ray Rice situation, his wife decided not to press charges against him. He hadn't played another down in the league. Greg Hardy, he was convicted of domestic abuse, got put on the commissioner exempt. He was accused of domestic abuse, got put on the commissioner's exempt list where he got paid. And as soon as he was found guilty, then he was suspended from the league. You look at somebody like. It wasn't Patrick Willis. It was the other uh, San Francisco linebacker and his girlfriend, you know, went out of her way to accuse him and lie on him and all this and that. There were no he was going through the criminal proceedings and got put on the commissioner exemplist. You don't have to be guilty to get put on the commissioner exemplist. Whatever punishment he's going to face in a legal realm, he's going to also have to face punishment for the league and. Honestly, the most like big example that we can all wrap our mind around. Mike Vick, when he got released from prison and came back to the league, he had to apply for reinstatement into the league. It wasn't just an automatic given that, hey, you're out of jail. Everything's good. Like, no, the league is a separate business. Basically, you would think about it like this. Say you got caught drunk driving. Stupid. Don't do it. Call an Uber. But say you got caught drunk driving. You getting caught for drunk driving and going to jail. If you were able to get out that night and make it to work the next day, your job, unless you're, you know, like in a high functioning job with a moral compass type thing. Probably wouldn't fire you. You know what I'm saying? If you just got like a regular nine to five type thing, probably wouldn't fire you. If you stayed in jail and missed work, if they fired you or terminated you, you got out of jail, you would probably have to reapply. But if your job has a moral code and say you got pulled over and they thought you were drunk driving and put you in the drunk, put you in the drunk tank to sober yourself up. And, you know, you just had some Benadryl, you know what I'm saying? And you come out. And come back to your job. And they enact that moral compass. You weren't found guilty of anything. You didn't technically do anything wrong. But you made the company look bad getting locked up. And they could terminate you with cause for that. Same thing. The NFL is a private business. It is in the private business sector. And that's exactly what they can do to Deshaun Watson. So trading for him is truly just a moot point. Like I, I don't see any point why you would do it. But if you were to do it. You would have to look at the fact that. Even after the legal ramifications, the business of the NFL could then deal with him. So my next point is about the passion of the fan base. I was talking to a friend and it really sparked this conversation. Atlanta has a lot of transplants. A lot of people coming from different spots because they want to be part of the scene. You know, this is becoming the Hollywood of the South. Our basketball team is coming up. The Braves chop on, chop on, making it to the World Series. But there's so much fluidity going on in Atlanta. There's so there's so much to do. There's so much to be here. But a lot of people come from other places. And with coming from other places, bring their team's allegiance. There are so many Dallas fans here. There's a lot of Saints fans, you know, because regardless of how I feel about you football-wise... A lot came as transplants from Katrina and, you know, built lives here. But they still keep their loyalty toward their team. We've got tons and tons of people from Florida. Bunch of Miami fans, bunch of Tampa fans. And, of course, we got people from New York. (laughs) So we see Giants fans down here all the time. I think having that mosh posh of people, that huge group of people... Even though Atlanta is a super metropolis, keeps us from being as passionate about the fan bases because this fan base is adopted as such. The people here kind of fall into the same tropes as our teams are always kind of lovable losers or they'll find ways to lose. The passion that exists in the college football sphere for a team like UGA that's a little separated in Athens. People grew up there. They've been there for a couple generations. And for the most part, they've always won nine to nine to ten games. It's built that consistently over time. The Braves have a huge fan base, but a good part of that is because of TV deals. Turner Sports. You know what I'm saying? The the Braves were the only team you saw in pretty much the whole Southeast and up through uh up through the Midwest. So you got a lot of Braves fans in Alabama, Mississippi, Nashville, South and North Carolina, and Florida. Even as far out as Texas and Kentucky. And so, with that huge fan base of the Braves, you look and you think, man, why wouldn't it extend to the other Atlanta sports teams? And it's because, like I said, one, transplants and uh, MLB isn't necessarily in those sectors. But then two is the fact that we as fans have just got to the point where we stop expecting mediocrity from our team and are being vocal about it. And I hear that we're a bad fan base because we say things like, oh, we should draft another quarterback or like, oh, our running game sucks and get rid of this guy on the offensive line and fire the coaches. And I want you to know that is a healthy fan base. If you are a fan base that is not satisfied with mediocrity, that is fine that is great the fact that atlanta isn't known as one of the places with a raucous fan base that's hard to play is is just straight up disrespectful not only because we have enough people but the passion is there we're just getting to a point to where we are as vocal about showing our passion in just the three weeks i've been doing this my Views for the podcast have doubled, tripled just because I put my name out there and say, hey, I'm talking about the Falcons and the Hawks. People want to hear about it. People want to hear different angles. People want to care about these teams. And so I, I, for one, am tired of being talked about like our fan base is bad or trash or anything like that. And I know you are, too. So let yourself be heard. Let your voices be heard. I know for a fact that Atlanta's fan base was the reason Dan Quinn got fired halfway through the season because that wasn't a Falcons move. We held on to Mike Smith for years after he was done. We didn't let let Dan Quinn coach another game after that 0-5 start. And honestly, that's how it should have been. That's how it should have been. That is a fan base that is not satisfied with just good enough. Or in that case, playing up bad. Don't want to keep the status quo. We desire more. And that's a fan base who's used to winning. They talk about being spoiled by winning. Yeah, you can be. Once you win, you expect to win more. And I love seeing that from our fan base. So, in all truth and honesty, keep it up. some sometimes we become a little toxic. I feel like we want to fire every single player and everybody's a bum. But even getting those discussions up, getting those discussions in just shows that these teams really matter to people. They matter in people's lives. And if you look at the Bible Belt, you look at the Southeast, football has always mattered. The SEC is huge. So for that to leak into our pro sports, it means the world to me. All right, so that's going to be the end of City Talk. This has been Birds of a Feather Podcast with your boy City. Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at QCity11. Love to hear from you guys. Thank you for all that y'all have done for the podcast, helping it grow, helping it build. Hit me up. I want to get better. If I shot you a listen, you gave me feedback. I 100% appreciate it. If I didn't say it back in text or in the message, know I'm saying it here. I very much appreciate you. Uh, As always, go Falcons. I'll see y'all on Thursday.
1: Yeah, Lookin' like I hit the lotto I want a hottie like mulatto I'm on him, and she on scuttle. I'm in them guts till tomorrow I'm a robber for the De deniros Yo, yo little laws, I'ma yo, put you on yo. payroll hey, You smell sh- that aroma? That's eye that's a party, yo! Papa Corona, she moving her body, she working them heels. Oh. Gotta go get a mentality, grocery bag full of celery. Yeah. On a believe hat, what she telling me? Keep a twenty on oh my case emergency. I wake up early every morning, thank the Lord and get the bag. Hustle hard, get the cash stack first, then I show 'em my head Gotta go get a mentality, grocery bag full of celery. On a believe hat, what she telling me? Keep a twenty on oh my case emergency. My babies. That's who I grind for. That's who I doing for. Like the Navy? That's who I'm told that I'm for. Keep one in the head like a thought, nigga. Yeah, I fuck with Ty, he a boss, nigga. Put on a nick,
0: I exhaust, nigga. Niggas cross me, so I cross, nigga. Them strippers was lit last night. 500 what it cost, nigga. Shit was really legit last night. Had them hoes at the house, nigga. Instagram, Snapchat, Triller. What they say about Jay Hill, so Giller. Used to have them fat sacks in the grove, nigga. Late nights, early morning, of my dough, nigga.
1: You smell that aroma? Designer, designing yeah, that's a party. Hell? Papa Corona? She moving the body, she working them heels Gotta go get it mentality. Gross it bad, full of celery. On a believe had what she telling me. Keep a twenty.